I am not a normal real estate broker. Um, I, I deal in the world of, of new development and new houses and working with architects and designers. And I'm not necessarily, hey, Peter, show me a house in Highlands Ranch. That doesn't get me jazzed. What gets me jazzed is really going out there and really being involved in how real estate is evolving. Hi. Hello. 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 Hello, and welcome to Architecting. Hey, I'm the host of the show, Adam Wagner, and with me today, I have a special guest. This is, uh, I'd say, like a super fan, maybe outside of Will Coning, I think it's the, the biggest super fan, probably. My mother, Barbara Wagner. Welcome, welcome to the show. Hello, Adam. <laughs> so I think this, this, you're, you're a fitting um, co-host to have on right now, A, because... I recorded this interview that we're going to do back in November, but I put off recording this introduction until the night before, which I always do, the same time you were visiting, so I'm doing this instead of hanging out with you. But this person that we're interviewing is also not an architect, but someone that's very close to architecture, like you have been watching me become an architect. So today we have Peter Blank on the show. Do you know who Peter Blank is? I do not, but I guess I'm going to find <laughs> You're out. You're going to find out. Peter Blank, he is the co-founder of Mile High Modern Real Estate Company. So it's a very large real estate company here that, that deals with a lot of mid-century modern uh, architecture and then has kind of expanded beyond that. But I wanted to have him on the show because I think he has a really interesting relationship to design where he is dealing with with clients and the, the sort of end users of of architecture and then also working with developers and architects and sort of mediating in the middle um and so he has a lot of a lot of interesting insights uh interesting life where he grew up in in brazil and and kind of went around in different professions until he sort of landed in real estate and almost landed his own real estate reality show at one point but yeah, I think it was a it was a good conversation where I, I talked to him a little bit um, before, but really got into his life and and seeing sort of architecture and the profession of architect, but seeing architecture and the profession of of what was I talking about? How's this going, mom? <laughs> My mom's laughing at me here <laughs> when I keep messing up. She only she only sees the very polished final podcast you know this podcast is so polished and just so pristine and now she's seeing how the sausage the is getting made <laughs> and this the, yeah this conversation was really interesting to me where uh just seeing someone who's who's working very uh closely with architects and to see that the profession through his eyes and through the client's eyes and um thinking about how the things that we design have the possibility to, to influence people in, in different ways. Um, so we have we have dogs walking around and so we have more noise and and that was also the case for this interview. We we had some phone alerts that kept going off and I couldn't get them out. But anyway, it's a super polished, pristine podcast. So mom, do you have anything else to add? I can't wait to hear it. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for visiting. Now we can go hang out. All right. Enjoy. Enjoy. 
Many of our listeners are familiar with Herman Miller, a 100-plus-year-old company known for its rich legacy in modern designs, ergonomics, and thought leadership. For Colorado, Workplace Resource is the certified platinum dealership representing Herman Miller, and we are proud to support the Colorado design community. Whether you are in the market for a functional and stylish home office setup or exploring a broader solution to outfit your entire workplace, we are the partner you can trust. The local teams with Herman Miller and Workplace Resource can connect you with research and insights, create a high-performing work environment, especially in this current shift with the way we work. We encourage you to explore our future of Work Hub for more information, and the link is in the bio. Conceptual thought starters. Not sure what type of solution works best? Browse our planning ideas to start the conversation. You can download Revit files and full tools to really help dial in your solution for your floor plan. And lastly, full project design, specification, and installation for small businesses to full campuses. Workplace Resource is really the place to begin. Be sure to connect with our team. We look forward to supporting our design partners in the Colorado community. And in the meantime, please enjoy architecting. Hey, we're happy to be sponsored by Modern in Denver Magazine. For over a decade, they've been crafting fantastically curated content on Colorado designers and projects, spreading the gospel of good design within our region. And I love how the goal of Modern in Denver aligns with the goal of this podcast, to better build up and connect the community of Colorado designers. So go buy a copy of the magazine at your local bookstand, subscribe to their weekly email list, and follow them on Instagram. Check it out. Well, cool. Well, thanks. Thanks for coming on. Of course. Thank you. All pleasure here. What, uh, what does your Thursday look like? What what does a day in the life of Peter Blank look like? (laughs) Um, I really feel very, um, fortunate that I am not a normal real estate broker. Um, (laughs) I, I deal in the world of of new development and new houses and working with architects and designers. And I I just have so many different hats. And for me, that's, that's what gives me the energy. I I'm not necessarily, Hey, Peter, show me a house in Highlands ranch. That doesn't get me jazz. What gets me jazz is really going out there and really being involved in how real estate is evolving. And That's really my passion and my my super strength. It probably, but yeah, but it probably took you a while to get there, right? Oh yes, <laughs> <laughs> you did, you did a lot of like, those. Uh, hey, it's Peter, been a show long, me a house. hard climb, <laughs> but not everybody is you know wired that way either. I'm I'm definitely more design focused, and that's really how Mile High Modern was born. Was really on design and architecture and and seeing the possibilities of existing structure going forward. I was probably in the forefront of that. And I was able to bring talent together in order to achieve the next generation, if you will, hmm. of, of saving some of our fantastic housing stock. I mean, that's how it all happened. And fast forward to today, it's a completely different animal. <laughs> but, yeah. That's interesting. So how, how did you get there? What, what, What's your background that developed you into this person right now? You know, at, at, it was like we all we always go back and go, okay, when we were kids, 
um, had we been exposed to X, Y, and Z, what would we be as adults today? And I will tell you, my parents have zero interest in the arts or design or architecture. I mean, as a kid, I was never exposed to architects or designers, um, fashion, none, none of that was ever hmm. exposed to me. So I, I, it kind of evolved as I grew into a young adult, but I grew up in Brazil, so in, in specifically Sao Paulo and spent hmm. time in Rio. And even as a kid, I remember being mesmerized by architecture because down in Sao Paulo, it has some of the world's greatest architects. And the buildings, even back then, because I'm old, but even back then, architecture was so progressive. Now, keep in mind, I did not have that vernacular back then to ex explain that the progressive architecture was going on in a 12-year-old kid's mind. But I knew that I was really drawn to it. And I was drawn to public parks and, and fountains and the way buildings were created. And I was always fascinated by going to my parents' friends' houses, never mine, but mm. our friends' houses that had more um, design forward, I guess, um, thinking. And I was always fascinated. I just never was able to articulate it or actually but able to, to translate it into a skill set. Hmm. But that's funny when you said, you know, you, you didn't come in contact with design or fashion or, you know, and then I expect you to say, and I grew up in northern Nebraska and no, but you grew up in these metropolitan areas of Brazil. You, yeah. you, yeah. You, you, you had a leg up and yeah, a lot of things. Well, I did. But, I so, had exposure. I just didn't have anybody to help me guide that exposure hmm. into something that was productive, you know, so that I would say that um, more than anything. Yeah. And so what what did your parents do that you were living down in Brazil? They, my dad was, when I was two, he was hired to open up an engineering firm in Sao Paulo. Hmm. So we we flew down. I grew up, you know, 17 years in Sao Paulo. And wow. I came back to the U.S. when I was just, just before college, I would say. So I had one hmm. year left of high school in the U.S. and then I went to college. And so for us, we didn't know anything differently. It was you were living in a big megatropolis, if you will, Sao Paulo being one of the largest cities in the world. Yeah. But it was also conflicted with immense poverty, with balanced, with or juxtaposed to immense wealth and, and all the good, the bad and the evil and the ugly that goes with that. So hmm. as a kid, I was exposed to, urban life that I never really experienced in the U S yeah, but I wouldn't trade it for the world. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so you had this sort of, uh, passion for design and culture that, that grew in you, uh, in this very, uh, energizing place with, and then, then I thought you were going to say your father was like a politician or something, but he was an engineer. It's even, yeah, it's even like business, business no related. style and design, not, not. All right. I get that. Yeah. I get that. Uh, but, but um, it, was, it was all good. I guess yeah. my grandmother was an artist. So I got something uh, out of some family gene, I guess. But, but it was what I was saying. So, yeah. So you had, so you had all this, you go into high school and then how do you know what's next, right? Like what, what, what is next and where does that push you outside of Brazil? So what was next was a culmination of 
nothing that ever got me to where I was today, but I started in the airline industry. That's where I hmm. moved to Denver with the old Frontier Airlines. I was in communications with the airlines. After that, I went into the chocolate industry, after the hmm. airline industry. And in the chocolate industry, that's where I really developed, I would say, my skill set for marketing. Hmm. And it, um, and then I was also in management at Neiman Marcus when it first opened in Denver. This was back in the early 90s. Hmm. And that exposure really helped solidify minimalism and taking objects or fashion and really showcasing them in a, in a very artful form. So I think I started pulling everything that I had as a kid and pulling it forward. And I started to develop my own sense of style. And then after all that, then I, everybody was telling me all along, Peter, you need to be in real estate. You need to be in real estate because hmm. everybody always loved the homes I lived in because I had this unique style that was seldom seen, at least in Denver. And I would say there's a lot of international influence in that, of course. But so then I got into real estate. And when I was in real estate, I was in there for the first two years just as a normal ass broker out there schlepping houses. and. I met my then business partner, Craig, and he had just started getting into mid-century design mm. and houses. And that's where my love affair really grew into modernism. I had it all along because Sao Paulo was all basically modernism. But this is where I really started learning about the housing stock in Denver, about what can be saved and what people were thinking of as visualizing as trash or as a bulldozable site to build a bigger house, we were looking at it through a completely different lens. And when we started this, this was going back to, let's see, when was this like 90, must have been like 95, I think is when we started in 96. Um, we, the New York Times got a hold of us because we started our website. We just really focused on saving architecture and more specific hmm. mid-century mid design. NYT loved it. And then Washington Post. So we just started getting more national media hmm. exposure on it. And these people really liked the fact that we were paying attention to some of these icons. And this is how our business grew. And um, I've never looked back. So during that time, my skill set started improving. So that's when I really started working with architects and designers because they naturally came to me because most architects, they appreciate really awesome mid-century phones. Mm -hmm. And um, I was kind of the gatekeeper, if you will, to most of those houses in the city of Denver. And so that's how my relationship started forming with the whole design community in Denver. Hmm. And it just kind of grew from there. Yeah. How, how did you get into that niche, I guess? Like, uh, were those homes as much as in demand as they are now, you know? Uh, or was it easier for you to find them back then and, and sort of flip them? Or I would say the community, because back then we didn't have, we didn't have the resources that we have today. So I would say good architecture and I would say classic good architecture transcends mm -hmm. time all day long. Mm -hmm. The challenge was back then there was no real case, no way to showcase it. There was no, the internet was just becoming available to us. So our website was in the infancy of it. A 
Google ability factor. There was no Zillow. There, there was MLS is not what it is today. So people in Denver was kind of a cow town then, big time cow town. So people moving in from out of state that particularly California that had grew up with Eichlers or they grew up with more mid-century influence, they were struggling to find that in Denver. So that's why our voice, we started bringing the collective together to really give it the exposure we felt it deserved and also understanding how to take them to the next level because most of our houses were antiquated the way people want to live today, but they still love the dynamic architecture and the bones that these houses presented. So how do, how do you make that work? Uh, living in a museum is not, we have a lot of purists out there in, in the mid-century world that like to keep everything in a time capsule. Mm. Well, that's not really practical for most people. Most people, their their lifestyles are different. They change. And how do how does that evolve into mid-century design that we were specializing in that? And which we still do. We still do a, a, a tremendous amount of mid-century. But it is like, how does that adapt? How can that be saved? How can that progress? How can that be enjoyed for the next hundred years? And so that's where our voice became really super, I, I guess, heightened, if you will, in the world of, of real estate and in the world of, of social media and everything else that followed from there. Hmm. So you start off as a, as a broker and you're just, you're just running around right. trying to, trying to sell things. You, you get in, you, you find this niche, you're getting press, you have a, you have a good partner. Then what happens is this like I looked at I looked at Mile High Modern today and how many brokers do you have? You have like <laughs> hundreds of brokers. Right. Like, we, uh, we, we've exploded, Adam. We've yeah, exploded overnight. But, you know, to get from where we started to where we are today, it is a. It, I guess it was a natural evolution. So we were always known as the modern guys, and we kind of got pigeonholed into mid-century design. So if mm. anybody had any inkling of a mid-century house, and this was in the brokerage world, or for that matter, buyers and sellers, oh, oh, call Peter, call Peter, he'll he'll do it. But then we started having other people looking at what we were doing and they go, damn it, we really love the way you guys market, but how, but we have a tutor. So how are you guys, how can you guys help me market my tutor home and in the mile high modern way. And so it started very organically. And then we, we as a company, me as a broker, I've always appreciated architecture. It doesn't, it could be a, it could be a craftsman. It could be a, an Italian eight. It could be a Victorian. It could be a Denver square. I love great architecture, good bones. And what I see is sometimes what other people don't see because I see the possibilities. Mm -hmm. And so I started evolving that skill set. And as the website started growing, we started adding additional bells and whistles to it that it made sense that we could market a Victorian house. So our, I guess our mission statement, our ethos started to change that we can market all property in a fresh, modern way. We're still rooted in strong architecture and specifically modern architecture. And, and by the way, during all this time, what I didn't mention to you is when Mile High Modern was born, that's essentially the same time Modern and Denver Magazine was born. 
Hmm. Where William and I became very good cohorts, if you will, in the very infancy. He was brand new. I was brand new. We were the first advertiser with his little stapled, I think it was like a fold fold magazine. <laughs> and I've supported him ever since then. And we kind of grew together. And it was interesting how that relationship evolved and how his magazine started growing and Denver started becoming more nationally in focus, our business immediately started, you know, capturing up there in the real estate world. And then when architects and designers started layering in there, it just, it really kind of grew together. So our, both of our businesses are very similar in platform and how they grew. Yeah. And I think it's interesting, you know, we, we had a, we had a good phone conversation the other day and uh, met one other time after that. But I, I think, I think you're really interesting where, you know, this podcast has been so focused on, on architects and like a few landscape architects or something, but, but your experience being so uh, alongside of architects and really seeing, working with the, the, the final products of architects from, from now, whatever, 70 years to 70 years ago. Um, and seeing your perspective of how, of architecture is interesting to me. And I think, I don't know if I want to answer this question because it seems hard, but what to you, what, it, what is this? I, what, what makes that kind of classic timeless architecture to you? And especially like the, the successful piece of architecture, maybe from a client's point of view. Are, so are we talking about like a, a new build or, or just in general? Take it how you will. Yeah. I would say it, everything starts with design and, I think it's funny because in our world, we see, I can identify walking into a house that was built in the seventies versus a house that was built in the nineties and the nineties and early two thousands. Those are my least favorite houses because there is no soul and they are so dated and antiquated in so many ways, but that doesn't mean they can't be tweaked. And that doesn't mean they can't be brought, but I, I sense today, and this is a roundabout way of answering your question. Today, the world is an explosion of, of ideas and materials. And I think as a homeowner going in, uh, for God's sakes, we'll just take it down to brass, you know, to, to the basics like Home Depot, your exposure to choosing a bathroom tile is mind numbing just in Home Depot, let alone going to a design center or going into an international uh, setting where you're looking at $1,000 per square foot in tile. You've got millions of opportunities and options. So I think sometimes, and I would say designers and architects have the same, same issues potentially because there's so much to choose from. And so many times decisions are made on trend or fashion or my kid likes this, so I'm going to do an all-purple bathroom, whatever have you. And it becomes diluted so much that it becomes trendy or obsolete so fast. So I always go back to the classics, good classic architecture. Classics are the ones that built in the 40s, some of the 50s, 60s, 70s. They're still relevant today. They might need to be updated a little bit, but they still have great light indoor-outdoor connection. Oftentimes the spaces work really well. The, the incredible ways in which there is soul built into these houses. And that's the challenge we have today. And we, we do some beautiful execution on new construction, 
And that's where I really have been so fortunate working with a lot of developers and architects. And I can give you a lot of examples where we all in this industry fail. But what I do is that my secret sauce is I'm hearing from my clients moving in from LA, from New York, from Chicago. And of course, my own intuition is, is the mistakes we're making, the mistakes on how we live on floor plan. I'm really mm. intuitive on floor plan now, better than I've ever been. I understand that dressing rooms are so important versus just a walk-in closet or a larger bedroom with a smaller walk-in closet. It's like, screw that. Do a smaller bedroom that can accommodate king-size bed and have a much larger dressing room. That's what people want. And this is where, I mean, and I'm giving you just one wild example on, mm -hmm. on floor plan issues on how we massage those. How do we mas massage where the staircase is? Does it need to be right smack in the center of the house where it takes up all this valuable square footage? Does it need to be the piece of art in the house? Can it be a little bit more subtle? to be tucked in the back you're going upstairs what do you go upstairs for that's private space why does your company entertaining why do they have to walk into your staircase for they have no use for it so these are the things i'm all day long i'm talking to architects and it's like helping us think about the next generation the next way we start building and looking at housing yeah. remember i've always said this there's never been a perfect house ever built which gives us there probably never will be a perfect house ever built because everybody has different needs. And what we build today will probably want a massage in five years from now. I mean, that's just human nature. Mm -hmm. But how do we keep evolving that? How do we keep getting better at floor plan? How we live, you know, ceiling heights, lighting. It goes on. I mean, do we need to have barn doors? My God, barn doors shoot me in the head. I, <laughs> they still put them in today. <laughs> barn doors should never be used. Some weathered, weathered barn, no, we barn it, doors. I mean, yeah. Anyway, so these are the things. <laughs> I've got a whole list of things yeah. that we should never do. And what is so funny because people intellectually, whether they articulate them or not, they feel it when they walk into a house. And sometimes those houses don't sell or they don't sell as for as high as they could sell if they were designed appropriately or they chose better finishes. It's not about spending more money. It's just about making smarter choices. And um, this is why we do what we do. Yeah. So often our clients become where we're the sounding boards for clients. And we are, what we do is we bridge good architects and designers and um, landscape architects, which is another, we can talk about landscape architecture all day long too, but bringing these people in, these professionals, these trades, to help this person, they, they found the right neighborhood, they found the right house, they wanted their kids are going to school here, but how do we elevate that experience for them? Yeah. And there's that, a lot of money in this town and they, they're eager to spend it on the right talent. Hmm. But I think I think that's so interesting, the idea that you're you're like the sounding board of all of the of everybody coming in and saying, This 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 is what I want in a house, this is what works for me, this this is how we live now. Uh, but being on that kind of razor edge of listening, but then not falling down to every new new trend, like you're saying, you know, where it's like, this is how we live now with uh, with these kind of closets and these kind of stairs. But but then not letting yourself fall too much into the cutting edge where it turns into a, a horrible design and 
five years, like you're saying. And I um, say one of my, I'll just give you another Peter Blank peeve <laughs> is an architects do it all the time. <laughs> and I, I'm always there to challenge him. It's like, you never want to open a bathroom door and look at a toilet. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I can't say that loud enough. They still do it all the time. We're talking about luxury condominiums, luxury apartment houses, new development. And it's like, you guys think it's, it is, it is. <laughs> Anyway, th- those are just some of the things that I-, I challenge. It's like where a door opening is. Does it open right? Does it open left? Can we do a vestibule entryway into something? Do we have to walk in and see a sea of doors, a closet door, a powder room door? I mean, it- it's just, it's really thoughtful when you when you have the time and you can actually work through some of these challenges because oftentimes it's not about spending more money. It's just about really thinking about how people live and and elevating the experience on how you live. Some people don't care about design, but they do care when they can, when they can see the difference. Mm-hmm. They may not be able to articulate it, but they do notice the difference when it's side by side. They will always choose the better one in design. It's like building a better mousetrap. You will gravitate towards that, even though you may not be able to tell somebody intellectually what you're looking for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think for me, it's so much about having an idea and a concept for the, for the building, you know, and I think that's where a lot of the mid-century were so successful in the way that they were rethinking how a house should be. Right. And it, and then it had inherent spatial qualities that opened it up and, and got rid of a lot of those walls and a lot, like if I can get to the point with a design concept where I don't have to choose paint color because my concept is telling me, how everything should be and locks in, you know, that's to me when it's perfect where I'm not choosing every little thing, but the idea of it is choosing it. And then it it gives it this cohesive whole when you walk inside and you understand it. And it's normally everything that's superfluous to it is taken away. Well, and honestly, that's always been my philosophy too, is, and I, I don't mean this in a, um, in a negative way. It's, simplicity and I would, I would say um, simplicity really rules and it can make the beauty of a house so much more than it is. Mm -hmm. And particularly when you dial in landscape to the interiors, oftentimes they're never done in cohesion. They're done after the fact architects are famous for, um, I wish architects could also do the interiors because then the vision becomes Mm -hmm. one versus I see clients all the time making tremendous mistakes. They'll have a fabulous house being built. Then they'll hire a designer that doesn't really understand the house, but there, they, there's so many mistakes that could have been avoided. And it's almost like you're walking into, um, it's almost schizophrenic in some ways. That, and, and then you add the landscape on top of it or the lack of landscape on top of it. And it's, um, it could just be so much better. And this is where we try to point out the differences or if you do X, Y, and Z, you will achieve this. And um, it, it is so, it's, it's amazing when it's done well. The execution can be just brilliant. And again, it's yeah. not about the money. Mm-hmm. It's like, give me a wood box and I'll make it look beautiful. Mm-hmm. 
is the right lighting and music and a candle. I mean, it's that simple. Um, it doesn't have to be rocket science. Yeah. And so who, who are you seeing architecturally creating, creating these types of these great spaces within Denver? What architects are you working with that, that are really amazing? Am I supposed to be name dropping? Yeah. Name drop. This, that's what this is all about. This is just like a gossip. I want to get myself local, in trouble out of This is a local gossip show. You, it's up to you what you say. Well, I think it's, it's all over the board. It, it, it depends on budget. And, and I would say just because you've got a big budget doesn't mean mistakes don't happen. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's the other thing. You can throw money at anything, but that doesn't mean you're going to get the great execution. And I, at this point, I would, with your permission, I would rather not name drop, but let's just say sure. I work with most of the architects in the city of Denver. I like some better than others. But I would also say some, like like all of us, I think the good ones adapt. And I think the good ones recognize that things, some things can be done differently or thought of differently in a different perspective. And um, I think influence, social media influence is so critical because we get, the world becomes smaller. We get to see what other architects and some of the architects in the Ukraine are unbelievable. Mm. And you would never, I would never think about hiring somebody in the Ukraine necessarily, but you start seeing some of their work in the beauty and the simplicity of the beauty. And it, it just, it's, it's soul. It's like, you, you just want to live in the space. Mm. And I always say a great space is created where you don't need furniture. If you can just mm-hmm. walk into the space and embrace it, it's a home run. Furniture is the frosting. It's, you know, it's the accents you need for practicality. People need to sit, people need to dine. You know, you have to have those, those things to make it. But um, if you can design something that's well lit and it's got great material and, and it lives in the world where it makes sense, window placement is so critical. That's another thing I have with a lot of designers and architects because they're, they're designing for a space, but oftentimes they're not paying attention to what they're looking at, particularly if it's infill. And it's such an opportunity to make it more exciting. I just worked on a project recently where it was several townhomes. So the dogs were the interior units and the dogs were because they only had light coming from east and west. They didn't have windows on either side, of course. Mm-hmm. So I challenged the team going, why do we have to make these dogs? What can we do to these residences to make them the superstars? The end units will be superstars on the own, but how do we make these superstars? Why do we have to have these as a discounted price? Yeah. Just because it's a triplex and or it's a sixplex. So what we did is the staircase became the architecture of the house on one side, but we skylit the entire ceiling and we did open stair treads. But so we, what we did is the interior units became this amazing light box. And what we Mm. did is we, we we deleted one or two units in this, I think it was a total of six. So we made them a little bit wider. The developer made their margins and then some Mm. because they were able to up the price and there was no dogs. And so we really play with, okay, how do we make these exceptional? Why build something that you 
right off the bat, you know, you're going to take a hit on. <laughs> that makes no intellectual sense to me. Yeah. Well, it's like, how do we create these? And let's give some tension. Let's give some relief. How do we, how do we do this in a thoughtful way? And we still have to hit performa. We still have to hit the, the margins that a developer needs. And it was a really cool exercise. And we ultimately didn't do skylights. We did Clara stories on the top because it was a less expensive option, but the Claire story ended up washing the entire... So when you mm. walk into these residents, you automatically felt, and felt embraced by light. And it was such an easy fix, but it took you know two or three weeks of massaging on how we get there. And um, it was such a, an awesome project. It's over here in Southeast Denver, and it sold very well, just recently closing out. It's awesome. Nice. I'll take you through it sometime, Adam. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> Uh, can you say who the architect was on that? I can say it was somebody you've interviewed. Okay. Nice. <laughs> somebody that's on your podcast. He was good, good, great architecture. In fact, the, the, the development was awesome. But what we, what we challenged ourselves with is how do we make these interior ones? How do we make the ones sandwiched between the ends equally as compelling? Mm-hmm. And it is um it was it was a fun exercise yeah just just that power of design again and mm-hmm. and thinking you know s- sort of especially down in kind of south american architecture the power of the courtyard and uh oh, the, you're, the you're speaking to my that, heart yeah. i i know yeah. yeah um in fact all my houses i'm doing now there's courtyard entryways there mm. there is no front door to the street like you can't get to the front door. It's it's amazing what a courtyard entry experience will do because it's a layer. Mm-hmm. It's another layer in which with it gives you an opportunity to create even I, I guess a serene way to get to the property. And it can be executed so beautifully. Of course, we always have to pay attention to Denver code and I mean that's a whole nother conversation, but there's ways to create the entry experience to a house and and make it unique and special and it ties in landscape to it and it's it's pretty cool yeah i'm glad you said courtyard yeah. uh, they, they can some, happen here love some courtyards yeah, yeah. <laughs> love it yeah they can happen here what do you what do you see you know i've only been here for five years or six years uh and and you always hear this term you know that denver was a, a cow town and and now it's you know it's it's becoming what it is what <laughs> Talk a little bit about that, how, how that you've seen that change as, as you've been here and then kind of projecting forward, what, what do you see the future of Denver as, and especially within, I'd say, housing or architecture? I would, so I'm definitely in the forefront of all of that. Um, obviously the past five years, this city has exploded and from tech to medical to ONG, you name it, everything, and then just the whole gig economy and the way um, self-starters are. Denver is such a such a natural place to land. So consequently, because of that, most people moving in are coming in from, I want to say more sophisticated cities, cities that have higher level of architecture, higher level of design, higher level of urbanization, which I think is a fair statement. In Denver, we're very landlocked. If you want to live in the city of Denver, there's not a lot of expansion to be had. So 
consequently, we have a lot of infill here. So land, dirt is very expensive here in Denver. And unfortunately, for a lot of people, we've outpriced the reality for a lot of people that want to buy in the city. And that mm-hmm. is that is a very challenging problem we have. And But what we're seeing is some of my favorite neighborhoods are finally taking dramatic focus on people like Wheat Ridge and Arvada, mm-hmm. Lakewood. I mean, some of these neighborhoods are re- really starting to see the possibilities in some of the housing stock up there is really architecturally interesting. They just need to be elevated. They need to be updated. They need to be renoed a little bit, or for that matter, just a good scrub and wash. And it just mm. showcases what it has. So we're starting to see people going outside of the city a little bit more and discovering more. But in answer to your immediate question, we have a lot of people. One of the reasons the rental market here is so high and I'm, I just sold my house and I'm living in Cherry Creek and I can't tell you the the whole bill is insane. I got a very good discount. That's why I'm here. But (laughs) um, I can't tell you the building I am in, the rents these people are paying. It is unbelievable. Hmm. The building is entirely leased. And the interesting thing by visiting the people that live here, the reason they're paying these out crazy rents, we're talking 5K, 10K, 15K Hmm. rent. Because they can't find a house. Hmm. They can't, we don't have what they're looking for. And um, they don't want to settle either. I mean, they don't want, or they don't want to go through the brain damage of doing a remodel or a renovation. So, so a lot of our, our apartment buildings, and I would say most across the city, we're in a similar situation with our housing stock. They're all leased, whether it's low end or high end or everything in between. And it's because there's no housing. And so we are constantly challenging ourselves. How do we create more housing here in the city? A lot of people are choosing to exit the city because they can cash cash out as long as they have where they're going. They either they're moving out of state or they are downsizing appreciably, or they're going, you know, as far as Salida because they found a really cool little place there, and now we can all telecommute and work from home, et cetera. So the dynamic is changing so much on how we live. And that's opened up so many possibilities. But I would say architects, designers, builders, trades, they're all slammed busy for the most part. And Mm -hmm. the challenging part is even if you have a project, it doesn't mean there's a payday anytime soon because it takes two years to build anything or three years. And then you've got the city and you've got the the whole backlog there. So it's we're in a we're in a tough spot. But the exciting part is Denver's growing and it's an exciting city to be, be living in. And we're, we're seeing the benefits along with a lot of the challenges we face. Yeah. It's so tough that that dynamic of, of like the project you were talking about before of doing one less unit so that we can raise the price on that. And, you know, but at the sacrifice, we're, try, what? we're trying, we're trying to make, you know, developers and ourselves more money with larger projects, but then it's just, hurting it and pricing more and more people out. Ways. But, but the market is pushing in that way. And, you know, I think, I think back to like your experience with, within Brazil and, you know, the, those uh, dynamics there of poverty and, and wealth so closely connected. And, you know, it's, it's such a hard issue of, of what you, what you do with that, uh, you know, and here, especially in how you, how you're able to 
And I would say I don't want to make a political statement, but kind of open the door. I will just say our country is heading more towards that direction. It is definitely the rich versus the poor Mm -hmm. and middle class is disappearing and it's scary. And a lot of it has to do with obviously the job force, but it also has to do with our housing, our, our cities. And it's just not Denver. Every city is, Mm -hmm. it's growing like crazy. We're doing business in Nashville right now. KC is like exploding. Every, every smaller city is gaining by leaps and bounds on percentages of housing and how they've increased. And it's, um, in some ways, it's like, where are the people getting all this money from? But what I think we often forget is we talk about these people with all this money, but what we're not talking about is all the people that don't have any money. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the part that is very concerning, too. It's like, where do these people live? And how mm-hmm. do they support the city? We need these people to support our city and growth because without them, we don't have services. And so how does that all work and play into it? So it, it's a it's an interesting time. Yeah. For sure. And just, you know, how we've been talking about the power of design and the possibilities there, but it's, it's so hard when you, when you, when I sort of price myself out of, of being able to help give design to lower end projects. Right. Right. And you have to go after those higher end and, and how you're able to kind of feed that back in. But. Well, I would love a piece of land to do uh, affordable housing because I would have a, I would love it. I would, mm. I would be on that all day long. I just think because every, in my opinion, everybody deserves good design mm-hmm. and it should be attainable and affordable, but it's, you know, sometimes I live in my own bubble, Adam. <laughs> I know. I, I, I feel the exact same way. Exactly. Um, yeah, there's a lot to do. Yeah. Uh, what's, what's been, what's been your, the, the hardest day of your career? Do you have one that sticks out? I would say it, it definitely has to do with emotions. It has, has to do with, um, so the good part about the business I'm in, I'm often helping somebody attain their dream house. I mean, mm-hmm. that is always the, the fun part, the closing day, the, the experience of them building your house for two years and they're finally moving in. Those are all beautiful moments. The reality is in my business also, I deal with a lot of stress. Mm. It's divorce, it's death, it's somebody losing their job. It is somebody that can no longer afford to be where they are, or it's somebody that they, the school system is failing their children. I mean, whatever those dynamics are. So those are the, those are the hard emotional realities oftentimes in our business too, that we end up holding a lot of hands and and getting our clients through the difficult times so they are able to go on to their next chapter. So I would say those are my hardest days sometimes because I I do take my career very seriously and I my heart is with my clients. Hmm. And so I, I do get on that roller coaster with them. But I also know my job is to make sure they get out and, and are able to move on but th- those are the hard parts of our business and, you know, negotiations and where people get ugly and all that stuff, that's just drama. <laughs> and that usually, I mean, that's more easy to deal with, but it's the heartfelt emotions where it's, it's really serious stuff where somebody gets sick and they can't afford. I mean, those are where you have sleepless nights. 
Yeah. And that has to be hard. Um, on the flip side, do you have one day that you remember that, that was just like the best day in your career? Or... The best day in my career? Um, <laughs> one, I, I remember, so we we almost got our own reality show. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not sure that was a good, or I, I'm not sure how that day actually played out. I, I, I think we, we chose the right decision at the time. And, but as far as good days, it is being awarded a project that you fought so hard for. And there's, there's a lot of competition and in, in our industry, Adam, you know, this as well as I do. And I probably in any sales capacity, they basically were in sales, whether we're architects, designers, or brokers in this business, you lose. I mean, we always lose, but we always, we always gain also. So for me, it's always, I've learned this very early on. I've never focused on my losses. I only look at going forward in my, in my wins because you just inherently you're going to lose. You can't win everything and it's okay. I mean, that's what competition is for. And personality types are driven by certain decisions being made and certain skill sets. So for me being awarded a big project that you've been working on for a couple of years, it's, it's very rewarding professionally. Uh, personally is going to a damn good restaurant and have a meal and glass of wine. <laughs> Little things like that make me very happy. So um, um, all my days are good. I try to have, I try to have a really good day. Um, and I'm, I'm very fortunate. And I, I, I'm very, um, and I acknowledge that I, I have been able to do just basically what I want to do. And, ha, which is which is a good place to be, but I don't take any of it for granted. I know as easily as it's here, it can be taken away tomorrow and or next hour, and I get that. And I'm I'm very appreciative and humble with with what life has afforded me and the opportunities. And the cool thing is, there's so many opportunities still out there. I've I've just scratching the surface of the things I want to do and accomplish. Still going forward. Yeah. So what's next? What's the thing that gets you most excited on the, on the horizon? Right now it's publishing and, and William has been really good with me on that, but I, I did MHM raw two years ago, but now that that's in me, I want to totally elevate that and take that to the next level. And it's really exciting. So I'll be working on that. And uh, there's many stories to tell and I, I want to get those stories out there. Yeah, cool. I I like that. Well, that, that, with, that really cool. It. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it ties together the visual, the narrative, and it. Um, the city of Denver definitely, in my opinion, can use it, and I would like to be part of that. Yeah. Well, you know, I you know since moving here, I've I've enjoyed Mile High Modern just in its visibility with its uh, design interest uh, and and just appreciation uh, just from the outside kind of seeing it and uh yeah i i uh, appreciate just your passion for design and how you're enriching our environment and thanks well, thank for you. reaching out to me and coming on the show so of course i i look forward to continued conversations and i need to get to know you better so we can start plugging you in yeah it sounds you good need to get adam out there sounds good yeah 
Well, thanks. Thanks for coming on. You're welcome, Adam. I appreciate it. You can visit architecting.com. That's architect-ing.com to see images from this week's guest. And please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Have a great week and keep connecting.